you know, it's going to hurt and it's going to be joyful and it's going to fuck up and it's going to go deeper than you ever imagined and it's going to smack you in the face. And that's just how it seems to be. And that's just the way it seems to be. I love this message from our guest, Susan Piver, who's a meditation instructor and the best-selling author of several books, one of which is The Four Noble Truths of Love. And that's what we're talking about today. The Four Noble Truths is a Buddhist concept, and Susan adapted this concept to explain love and relationships and to help make sense of why love and relationships are messy and hard and scary and amazing and incredible and necessary. And I am a huge fan of Susan. It was actually really hard for me to screw up the courage to ask her to be on this podcast. And I'm so glad that I did and that she agreed. This is a beautiful conversation. And we talk about the importance of cultivating inner kindness towards yourself and towards your partner the idea that relationships never stabilize, like ever, ever, the effects of having a caring and loving container and what that can do to your relationship. And also we touch on the Enneagram. And if you don't know about the Enneagram, you will know a little bit more about it and how it can affect the way you understand your partner. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Yeah, could you please introduce yourself? My name is Susan Piver. I am a writer and a meditation teacher and founder of the Open Heart Project, an online mindfulness community. I am a huge fan, and it was really scary for me to ask you to be a guest on the podcast. Yeah, get out of here. <laughs> I'm serious. Aww. It took me months to like to to screw up the courage to send the email. Really? Yeah. Well, here we are. Yeah, here we are. Um, I, I I forget how I was turned on to the Four Noble Truths of Love. I, well, I was first turned on to your work when my friend said, you absolutely have to read The Wisdom of a Broken Heart. Then I wrote, I, and and so what I, I didn't do was I didn't read that book because I, ha- I didn't have a broken heart. Even though now that I think about it, the heart is kind of perpetually broken, you know, a little bit. But I picked up the Four Noble Truths of Love and I and like I couldn't put it down. It made so much sense to me. And it's written in such a relatable way. Uh, it touched me a lot. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm curious what made you write the book? Well, a number of things. My own you know, awkwardness in relationships, certainly. And my discovery of Buddhist teachings and how helpful they were in my own relationship made me just want to share that because there aren't a lot of teachings from the, with, you know, with deep within the world of the Buddha Dharma, let's say, uh, about relationships, which makes sense because, you know, most of the teachers were monastics. 
most of them did not have families, or if they did have families, the focal point of their existence probably was not family life. So I, I think that this is the first book written about relationships from a Buddhist teacher that who is also a wife. So that seemed intriguing, and but but mainly the main reason was this is helpful, and. The other things that I've read or tried or contemplated have been less helpful. But these things have actually helped me to stay in my own relationship and to love more and open to love more. So, you know, the classic motivation, I would say. It's helpful. I wanted to share it. If we look at self-help books nowadays, it's most of it is do this so that you can have a good relationship, so that you can remove conflict from it, so that you can fix this thing. Mm-hmm. And that, that is not what this book is about. Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> one, you know, one of the interesting things among countless interesting things in Buddhist thought is that fixing is not really the end game because fixing is not possible because everything's going to fall apart, first noble truth. So if so, then what? How do we navigate this journey knowing that it's everything is impermanent? And if you were to even experiment with letting go of the idea that I'm going, I can fix this and I can create something lasting and bankable, if you could let go of that even for a moment, how would your world look? Like, that's a legitimate question. So it's kind of not a rhetorical question. It's an actual question. And the entire Buddhist path, I would say, is an answer to that question. How, do, how would it look and then what would you do? So we in the West, you know, we are in a transactional world. I will do this so then I will get that. And that, that has bled over into our, our heart relationships. We have to be quite pragmatic in the way we commit ourselves and who we align ourselves with. But when we bring that sort of commerce mind to our bedrooms and our heart space, you know, it's it just going to backfire at some point. This is the first noble truth is sort of like that suffering is part of the human experience. Life is suffering. And wah, wah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really easy to think that means life sucks. But I'm almost 100% sure that upon attainment of enlightenment, the first words out of the Buddha's mouth were not, life sucks. <laughs> I wasn't there. But I'm pretty sure that's not what he meant. <laughs> so the Sanskrit word, I think, or Pali is dukkha, D-U-K-K-A or D-U-K-K-H-A. And that is, I've heard more accurately translated as unsatisfying. Life is unsatisfying. In other words, everything is so kaleidoscopic. Everything is always changing and shifting. And the minute you get somewhere, the spot that you're standing on dissolves. So there actually is nothing to hold on to. Everything is in constant flux and that's painful. So that is 
something, as far as I understand, the meaning of the first noble truth. There's nothing to hold on to. Everything is impermanent. And that actually isn't the cause of suffering, which is the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering, which says grasping creates suffering, which is really interesting because, you know, everything changes. Everything we have, we will lose. Everything we love will fade away. Everything we have now, we won't have at some point. We'll have things we don't have, blah, blah, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the cause of the pain, according to the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. The grasping is the cause of the pain, which means fighting the First Noble Truth, like pretending it's not true, is actually the cause of suffering, rather than the constant flux of phenomena itself. I went to a meditation Dharma talk last night on how to prevent burnout in your career. Oh, that's great. And the, the, the concept was... Or the idea was uh, we have goals, right? We have career goals, we have aspirations in life. And, and when we get that thing, we will finally be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. We will be happy and we will have peace. But what happens is that we sometimes get that thing that we want and we don't get the happiness. Yeah. We don't get the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Then we work, we double down. We got to get to the next goal, work even harder and harder, and and it it all falls apart. Eventually, it falls apart because we're grasping. Yeah. This was a talk on career, but when I think about this in terms of relationships, we do the same thing with relationships. Especially. Especially with relationships. Especially. And it's so weird. I've noticed this too. The closer you get to someone, the more it becomes about you or me, I'll just speak about myself, the, the, the less able I am to see the other person and the more likely I am to interpret everything through the lens of, is this good for me or bad for me? Which is a very reasonable question that I, that I and everyone else should ask. Is this good for me or bad for me? It's not a, something wrong with that question. But when you start to see the other person purely in terms of your own refraction, you know, then I don't know what's going on there, but I don't think that's love. This whole this whole conversation could just be me quoting parts of your book and then asking you to expound on them. Uh, perhaps people can just get the book and get the beauty of this book. I had to stop at one point because I, f- I find myself doing this in, in work that I really, really resonate with. have to stop reading the book and pulling quotes out because then I have this document that's like 18 pages, but only 60 minutes to talk to people. So... Oh, I mean, thank you so much, by the way. It's because, you know, you create this thing. I just was sitting here going like this. So it's wonderful to hear this response. Thank you. Uh, it touched me. It, and, it, and it prepping for this interview made me want to read the book again and again. So it's like Marianne Williamson's A Return to Love. That is a book that I can open all the time, anytime. It's a wonderful book. It really is. It's like, uh, she's also on the list, but we'll wait for her to become president. and then yeah, President Marianne Williamson. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote Generosity of Spirit, so powerful in the early stages of relationship, begin to contract. We are so generous in the early stages of a relationship. I mean, there's the whole putting someone on a pedestal. They can do no wrong, no harm. They are perfect. Right, because that's the early stages of love, and it's beautiful. It's a drug, and it creates attachment, 
Like it's, it's there for a reason. We are bonding with people so that we can maybe transition into something that's more sustaining. But some of that generosity seems to kind of erode after a while when you're left facing another human being with all of their stuff. Yeah, all your stuff. All my stuff and your stuff and our stuff. Yeah. This is uh, another reason why it's so important to practice, I think, some kind of meditation or some, some form of kindness toward yourself because... The closer you get to someone else, the more diffuse the boundary between the two of you becomes. So you can't tell on some energetic level, I guess is the best way to say it, what what is me and what is you. You start to blend. And so the way you talk to yourself, which you would never actually speak in that way to anyone else, starts to become the way you talk to this other person because the boundary between you and them becomes kind of diffuse. So your inner talk and the way you talk to them start to mix. And the way most of us speak to ourselves, it's not very polite for like, you know, on the, is the most, is the best way of saying it and is vicious, you know, the most powerfully negative end of the spectrum. So it's important to cultivate that kind of inner environment of gentleness, not just for yourself, although of course it is extremely important for yourself, but because of the potency that it puts behind your communication. Isn't that, isn't that part of like right speech? Yeah. I mean, right speech classically is comprised of four things. No lying. I can get behind that. Yeah, but try to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard not to do it. it, it it's it, it's just, I'm not saying you're a liar. I'm a liar. It's just, it's, sometimes you don't know if you're telling the truth. No lying, no uh, divisive speech. Things that would separate someone from someone else or from something that they believe in. No abusive speech. And no idle speech. You know, unless you have something to say, just shut your pie hole. Can you improve on the silence? Right, exactly. Can you improve on the silence? So mindfulness is helpful in right speech. Absolutely. Absolutely. And on just this very practical, basic level of don't lie and don't, you know, then you can at least know if you're about to employ wrong speech. Sam Harris has a book called Lying. It's a very short book. And it it says that lying will erode the fabric of any relationship, mm-hmm. no matter how small the lie. Well, that's a big statement. Yeah. I'm sure he's not saying, so therefore just blurt out everything on your mind. He's not. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, um, in Al-Anon, they talk about this, this concept of um, say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean. Mm which is really beautiful. And also all of the stuff we're talking about is hard to employ. It's very hard. In the heat of the moment. It's very hard. Some way of working with your own mind is essential. Otherwise, it's you're just hoping for the best. 
that was one of the takeaways of the talk last night was uh, we have to, if we want to get better, we have to train the mind like, like we train the body. Yeah. But with less um, aggression. <laughs> Much more compassion. Yeah. And a return to love. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, the second noble truth, I mean, the first noble truth of love is that relationships never stabilize. I know. Did, no one ever told us that, did they? I, I didn't go to relationship school. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> never got taught in high school, never got taught in college. And it's true. They're always in flux. They never stabilize. They're always going up and down, close, far, bored, attracted, confused, clear. I, I mean, I thought, oh, we'll, we'll work out these kinks. And, you know, at some point, we're going to have a smooth sailing situation. No, nope. never happened. You might sail smoothly for a bit. Yeah. Right. It's not right. all choppy seas. No. Then it would be a bad, pretty bad relationship. And there's nothing wrong with leaving that. No. I love that disclaimer in your book, by the way. Hey, this is for healthy-ish relationships that are absent of any sort of abuse or gaslighting or manipulation, addiction. addiction. And just to say, if you're in a relationship with someone who's an addict, then there's recovery happening or desire of recovery happening. Fine. Great. Yeah, but I don't want some, anyone to think, oh, I'm in an abusive relationship or I'm in a relationship with someone who's an unmitigated addict and some Buddhist lady told me relationships never stabilize, so I should stay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want anyone to think that. <laughs> Susan said to stick it out because they don't stabilize and I am now spiritual. <laughs> I'm just going to do what that Buddhist lady said. <laughs> cross my fingers <laughs> she knows what she's talking about <laughs> yeah so yeah no i appreciate you pointing that out because it, it is really important it, it and it is complicated and difficult and obviously when addiction or abuse are present and so all of this applies to the like you say healthy-ish range of problems which can be anything from i don't like that you're always late to you know you neglected to tell me you were planning gender reassignment surgery you know that's not that's a big deal but that's not a pathological problem i was just talking to somebody about that yesterday they're like oh all of a sudden my my husband doesn't want to be my husband anymore he wants to be my wife happens she's dealing with it it's not abuse or addiction it's a big problem <laughs> but it's a big deal let's say yeah it's not a problem it's a deal it's a situation yeah that needs to be addressed absolutely <laughs> <laughs> Second noble truth of love is that expecting relationships to be stable is what inherently makes them unstable. Yeah, they never stabilize, but constantly trying to jam them into stability or expecting that that will happen actually feeds the difficulty of the instability. You know, it makes it much more painful. And that if you it's like, I get, I mean, I don't, I've never surfed, but I imagine that if you're kind of loose limbed, it's easier to stay on the board than if you're like freeze, you probably get knocked off. So it's that quality of 
can I ride this? I have a sponsor. <clears throat> I got sober like 10 years ago in San Francisco. And my sponsor at the time likes to say, wear it like a loose fitting sweater. Mm-hmm. That's great. It being whatever you're struggling with. I think that's really great advice. And for me, it was often relationships. Relationships are, yeah, are very hard. They're very confusing. Which is probably why I've been single for a long time. Well, maybe you're just smart. Yeah, maybe. I'm, it's, uh, there's self-preservation in there for sure, but it's also not what I want. Yeah, but, but you're also not just like going, okay, well, I'll, I'll pick you then. I could have done that a long time ago. I would rather not be in a relationship than be in one that doesn't support me or serve me or serve the other. That's very kind to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. I never thought about like me not being in a relationship with someone as being like is a, a service, like an act of service to them. Well, it is because, you know, I mean, it's so funny. I, I hear people talking about the relationships and you want to be in one and I get it. I get it. But when you think about like all the conversations I hear over here or things I read in books, or it's more like you're trying to cast someone in the role of lover or partner or something. You know, like, I want them to be smart and funny and have a job and all these qualities. And great. I hope that whatever you envision is not only what you would get, but will actually make you happy. But it's just so much more mysterious and so much more interesting than that. I think. Just because I haven't had a girlfriend doesn't mean I'm not like dating or exploring. I like to just explore connections for what they are mm-hmm. and to see what comes of it. What else what else are you gonna do? Well, you're gonna jam people in the in the partner box. That's true. That's true. Ugh. So painful for everybody. It's, yeah, for everybody. Yeah. Oh, it's very confusing the whole thing. Which is sort of really connected to this thing that you wrote, which is the focus is on expanding our heart's capacity right, rather than waiting for another to fill it up. Yeah. It's got to be messy. No matter what. It's going to, there's no way to make this not messy. It's going to be messy. You fall in love with someone, they don't fall in love with you or vice versa, or you fall in love with each other, but then the one wants to live here and the other wants to live in Timbuktu and, you know, or you want to have kids, they don't want to have kids. I think often, understandably, we're just looking for a way to make it safe, make it neat, make it, or even just saying, it's going to be messy as, as a way of making it neat. You know, it's going to hurt and it's going to be joyful. And it's going to fuck up and it's going to go deeper than you ever imagined. And it's going to smack you in the face. And that's just how it seems to be. I'm pretty sure that's not a Buddhist teaching, but that seems to be how it works. <laughs> but if it's not, it should be. It should be. Right? And it's, it's like making, it's sort of like Esther Perel and, and her book, um, Mating in Captivity, you know, making love safe kind of extinguishes it. There's no way to make it safe. Kind of a kind of a buzzkill. You can't make it safe. So that's the bad news. <laughs> you know, the good news is it's not going to really be boring. That's sort of a beautiful segue to the th- third noble truth of love. 
meeting the discomfort together is love. It's going to be messy. It's, it's, there's going to be ups and downs. It's going to smack you in the face. And can we meet that instability together? Right. And instead of sort of facing off, like you did this, you did that, this is your fault. Oh yeah. Okay. I guess that is my fault, which is useful to a certain degree. It's, can you look at where you are on the ride together and can you sort of remain connected through all the disconnection and connection and reconnection and dislike and love and hatred even and um, distance and closeness? And can you stay connected to each other's hearts? Can you like still remain cognizant of each other is all I really mean. I don't mean feeling kindly disposed toward. I mean aware of, connected to, present with. Hmm. That's love, I think. In the book, you talk about this this principle of the like a strong container. Yeah. For your relationship. Yeah. What's the importance of this concept? Well, I, I'm really interested in the notion of. Con- containment and container and in in my buddhist world people talk about something called the container principle which is just very simple it's the space in which something transpires influences the something and the something influences the space so it's like are you drinking tea or coffee or something out of that little cup tea tea so if if you had that tea in a glass mason jar you know it would taste different there you go (laughs) nicely demonstrated (laughs) my beautiful young assistant thank you (laughs) so it would just it's just that simple the thing and the thing that holds it are interconnected and you know if you meditate on a bus your meditation practice feels different than if you meditate in a cathedral you're the same, the practice is the same, but the space around you is different. So you can create a, a space for your relationship in a sense. And it's not just, usually that's in the place where you live. And so it doesn't have to be perfect or super tidy or anything, but some sense of caring about the outer environment and not just your home, but the food you eat and the clothes you wear. Not that they have to be fancy or sexy or expensive, but just that you like them and that they're clean. And some sense of caring about the environment that you share. Not because, you know, you're obsessive, but to care for the space that you share together somehow gives off, emits a loving environment that you can turn to when love in your heart is hard to come by. It can feel supportive. So the container principle sort of says you don't have to generate everything, confidence and love and strength. You can draw it from the environment that you build around yourself. So I I have don't think anyone should believe me, <laughs> but you should try it and see. If you care for yourself, your environment, the food you put in your mouth, 
the space you live in, if you put care into it, what, how does that change the way you feel about yourself and the people in your world? And how does it change the way you hold yourself and think about things? Because it really does change things, I think, but people should discover it themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun caveat that you have in your book too. It's like, hey, try this stuff out. Yeah. And if it doesn't work for you, great. Yeah. But it might mm-hmm. work for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, move on. Go get another book. Well, yeah, good. It's not for you. And that's fine. I mean, the Buddha said that. The most important thing about any teaching is to mix your mind with it. Mm. And then what you, you have to corroborate it. That's the whole path. Um, that's just not, not like a nice, humble thing to say. It's like, that is actually the practice. And then what you find to be true, now it is your wisdom. You can forget about Buddha or wherever you read it. And what you cannot corroborate, if you're good, you, know, you don't have to, that's not just, you have verified it to be not true. So now go on, discover what is true for you. <laughs> so it's very important. That's the whole path. Go on, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, keep it moving. <laughs> Nothing to see here. <laughs> I love the container principle. You know, it's like, uh, I just sort of paraphrase it as clean up your space, wear nice clothing, eat good food, spend time outside and spend time with loved ones. And, That's it. That's the whole thing. And I love the concept of uh, a shared space that is clean and tidy, mm-hmm. not fancy, mm-hmm. not ostentatious. It doesn't mean buy, go out and buy a whole bunch of new stuff. Take care of what you have. Mm-hmm. And I'm, um, I'm a Virgo, so I like things tidy. Mm-hmm. And for me, when my apartment is messy, I feel messy. Yeah, that's exactly it. There's no disconnection between you and the space you're in. The easiest thing I can do to make myself feel better is to tidy up my space. I know. It's not fake. It's not fake. <laughs> it's a messy, I, I feel I have a messy mind, you know, when, when like my shit's all over the place. So I don't let it even get there. I just, every night I spend time tidying. That's great. Because I wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm smart. I tidied last night. Hey. Not, I'm not <laughs> tripping over shit. It's good. So I like a tidy environment too. Basically, I'm not a Virgo, but I like, I like, I like simple. And I like to have a lot of things. Yeah. But my husband likes things. He likes, but it doesn't. It does to me. It's like what I, I can't even see what's in there. It feels like clutter. But to me, to him, it doesn't feel like clutter. It took me a long time to really believe this. To him, it feels cozy. And. And he likes it. It's just a different aesthetic. So, there, in, in other words, I guess the point I'm trying to make is it can look a, like a, it can look a number of different ways. People don't have to Marie Kondo their whole life, although I think she's great. <laughs> and I Marie Kondo her whole house, and it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, great. I just did my closets. Um, it's funny when I when I read your book the first time, and I was on this container principle, and I was. I was sort of stuck on like wear nice clothing or like wear clothing that you like. I was sort of in a dark space. I I wasn't feeling particularly confident about myself or about my love life and about the fact that like, oh, I'm a love coach that doesn't doesn't have a partner. Mm. (laughs) I have a podcast on love, but I'm single, you know? And so I was feeling kind of down. Mm. And I bought a couple sweaters because I only had one sweater. And I wanted- You live in Canada. I have a lot of hoodies. 
Oh, okay. But I was like, but but again, wear nice clothing. Like, yeah, hoodie kind of feels they're nice. They're 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 cozy. No judgment, but it's not the most dressed up look. Mm-hmm. I don't feel grown up when I'm wearing a hoodie sometimes. Okay. So I bought some sweaters. And then it was <laughs> there's some sort of a line that says so like, you know, wear clean, wear something clean. Like don't pick up stuff off the ground. I often just throw my stuff in my closet and in the morning I kind of get dressed from like what's on the ground. But for a while I was like, Susan wouldn't want me to wear this sweater, Sean. You need to I'm proud of you, Sean. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Susan would want me to to wear a fresh t-shirt, even though this t-shirt's probably fine. I'm gonna throw it in the wash, put a fresh one on. I just needed to share that with you. That's hilarious. And how did, did you feel better or did it not matter? A little bit. It it doesn't, that doesn't bother me too much. Like I don't mind wearing a t-shirt twice. Yeah. It's useful to pay attention to what you put on and to care for yourself. And it it doesn't have to look one particular way and you don't have to be like OCD about it. Yeah. And I like the concept of like putting some effort into your space. And into Mm -hmm. yourself. You could call it care, putting care into your space. That that changes it for me. To care about your things, it imbues things with a kind of something warm. Mm -hmm. In my head, I was like, imbue, that's the word. Imbue, yeah, with love. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) Yeah, it imbues it imbues it with love. Yeah, and I, and I think that's important to recognize in a relationship when you're sharing a space and you might not feel super great about each other, but you still go through the motions of putting the dishes away, of preparing the meal, of folding the laundry, because you're ultimately saying like, I, I might be angry with you right now, or we might have some friction, but I still love you and I still love us. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to let the whole thing just fall apart. I'll still do the work. Yeah. That seems like meeting instability together Mm -hmm. yeah and just knowing where you are is really useful like sometimes one of you feels like things aren't going very well and the other one is like what and you may feel differently about it and that's that's not weird but to be cognizant of how the other person is feeling and where they are and how it may be different or the same as you is you know, you're on this ride together and can you remain with your hands connected? You know, your eyes connected and your hands connected. Don't let go. And can you be generous? Mm-hmm. I think generosity is like one of the the paramitas. It is the first paramita. First paramita. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm familiar with the paramitas now because I've read it here and I've also read it in Eat to Love. Eat to Love. Isn't that a great book? I just talked to her last week. Oh, you did? I did. My Jenna. Oh, that's fantastic. We had a great time. We had, it's actually, it's, um, that episode's coming out on Tuesday. Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm editing it today as like between interviews. Oh, that's wonderful. It's so good. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Jenna is wonderful. She's so smart and she's so, she is very generous and we're both obsessed with the Paramitas. Yeah. We try to turn them into everything we do. <laughs> yeah, generosity uh, is non-transactional. 
it's free of manipulation and it's it's based on on unconditional openness it's a gift Mm -hmm. with no expectation of anything in return Mm -hmm. that seems to be a key element to creating a loving partnership yeah although it is hard not to expect something in return you know, the key to generosity as a paramita and just in general, I think, is said to be feeling your inherent richness, you know, at all times. So when you feel your inherent richness, it's easy to be generous because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I've got so much. i got so much. It's when you feel choked or poverty-stricken that generosity becomes difficult. But when you rest in your sense of unending richness, not you may not have all the money in the world, but you have all the brilliance and all the goodness and all the kindness, then it's easy. The generosity is just reflexive, as they say. And you can't pour from an empty cup. Right. So you have to take care of yourself. The first object of the paramitas is always yourself. You have to be generous towards yourself, disciplined about yourself, patient, show exertion and so forth toward yourself. I get the impression that that can be hard for some people. Yeah, it's very hard for some people. And it's very hard for many women. I don't mean to separate the the genders, but a lot of us, not just women, but a lot of people have been trained that you put yourself last. And if there's any left over, then maybe you could have some. And that if you put yourself first, that there's... you're, it's selfish and self-centered and bad. And yeah, if you put yourself only, then it's selfish and bad. But if you put yourself first so that you're, you know, your tank is full, then it's good. It's the oxygen mask. Yeah, first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the oxygen mask and the cup come up like so often. Maybe it's because I keep bringing them up. Quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not going to really help anyone if you're like choke, gasping for air. No, it, a lot of my listeners are women, and I can see that the the narrative is sort of put other people first. Sure, you know, for the family, for the kids. Yeah, and and men have sort of been conditioned to just get what just get what you want. If you want it, just go get it. I know, right? It's but, like yeah. you're not going to get it unless you fucking steal it from someone else right uh and that's a different narrative that's also damaging absolutely just as painful and damaging and it's easy to swing back the in the other direction which is just as crazy like i've told to put everyone else first so no for i'm never gonna i'm only gonna put myself first yeah that's not gonna work either um just really quickly how i just can't remember how the Enneagram fits into the. <laughs> well, Enneagram is, is everything to me. It's extremely. Have you ever studied it? Uh, I have the wisdom of the Enneagram book. Uh, I haven't really studied it. I did enough. I took the test and then I read my, my portion because I only care about myself. Of course. I was putting my oxygen mask on. But none of the tests are good. So. I'm not a seven with a six wing. You might be, but none of the tests are good. Oh. And the wisdom of the Enneagram is just one view of the book. Of the Enneagram. 
Oh my God. So yeah, no, it's very, it's complex. It's very. <laughs> we should do a whole episode on the Enneagram. That is very powerful. The Enneagram chain has changed my life and it's the most important relationship tool I've ever encountered. I had to restrain myself from writing the whole book about the Enneagram. Well, I think it would behoove us to touch on it a little bit now and then to maybe explore what a whole episode on the Enneagram because I can see it. There's fire in your eyes right now. The Enneagram is nine. Ennea is a Greek prefix for nine and it posits nine types of people, but that's different than nine personality types, which is very reductive. So nine sort of energetic styles, let's say. And among many things, the Enneagram points to attentional styles, like what gets your attention in any given situation. And so there's nine possible things that could get a person's attention according to the system. And when you know what gets your attention, that's very useful, of course. And when you know what gets your partner's attention, that is extraordinarily useful. So if you are a seven, for example, and I'm not saying you are or you aren't, what gets your attention is possibility. Your eyes on the horizon. And what gets, if I'm a four, which I am, what gets my attention is pain, problems, darkness. So my, my attention is going right here. Oh, that hurts. Oh, that's interesting. A seven, that hurts. Not interesting. Because you can't be looking at possibility and pain at the same time. So, okay, data point. That's all it is. One is not better than the others. There's good things and bad things about all the attentional styles. But my husband's attentional style goes to right or wrong. So it's a more black and white way of thinking. Is this the right way? Is this the wrong way? That's not mine. But it's very helpful for me to know that that's immediately where his mind is going to go in any given situation so that I can meet him there. So if we're having an argument, instead of saying, let's, let's examine this pain and see what we can learn from it, which is what I, my, my impulse uh, I could say to him, I understand what went wrong. I know what I did wrong. So that opens up a space where we can have a conversation. I'm not being manipulative. I'm just speaking his language in a sense. So in that way, the Enneagram is of extraordinary value. Teaches you all the other languages. It, it's about understanding how you operate and understanding how your partner operates. And then, then you can position yourself in a way in which you reduce friction. Exactly. And it's about understanding that the way you are seeing things is only one of nine possible ways of seeing things because otherwise, understandably, we just think, well, this is the way it is. This is the way I see it. Therefore, this is the way it is. Not because you're a bad person or mean. It's just, you only are looking through your lens. So you think this is the lens, but there's like nine pairs of glasses. So wouldn't it be great if you could take off your glasses and try on all the other kinds? Oh, well, that looks quite different. It, it's really fascinating. It is like having x-ray vision. It sounds like it's had some positive benefits to your relationship. I've been studying it for as long as I've been studying the Dharma, over really? 20 years. Really? Yeah. It, it is an ending source of value in my life. I use it every day of my life. I couldn't teach without it. I've highlighted the Enneagram mm -hmm. on my notes. I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do. 
Get to it. It never ends. Every time I talk to someone, I, I come out with five different things new. Someone asked me today, like, oh, how do you get your inspiration for your topics? And I go, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I've got a Google Doc with 140 topics. Like, That's amazing. Every day I put new stuff on there because it's never going to end. That's so good. That's exciting. It's, I, I see a world of possibility. That's so you do your eyes on the horizon, my friend. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's true. I was in a relationship recently with this woman and I could see the, the potential of the relationship. Mm-hmm. But on the day to day, did not work. Mm-hmm. No good. How come? Too much conflict. Mm-hmm. Too much butting heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, lovely woman. Mm-hmm. Amazing person. I'm sure. Uh, reminds me of a thing that you said that was something like uh, just because you love someone doesn't mean that you will love life with them. Isn't that weird? It didn't work. Yeah, it's so weird how. You love someone doesn't mean you're going to love your life together. I've had several girlfriends like that. Love them. Did not love what we were able to create together. Not every love affair can is going to become a relationship. And not every relationship can remain a love affair. It's rare. Can, can any relationship remain a love affair? Like a long-term relationship? Yeah. From time to time, sure. Like as in from time to time, you'll recapture some of that spirit? You can really remain in love and love each other and be attracted to each other and cherish each other. And yeah, I think it's possible, but I think it's rare. Uh, I mean, that's a thing that, that happens often. People ask me, you know, how do you keep passion in your long-term relationship? How do you stay in love in your long-term relationship? Some people fall out of love. They still love their partner. They're just not in love with them anymore. I don't have that answer. Why are you asking a single dude? It's impossible. You can't keep, I think, feel like when people are saying, how do you keep the passion in a relationship? They're saying, how do you keep the relationship the way it was in the first six months or six years? And you can't, it's not going to be the same as it was ever. So now what are you going to do? You're going to read the four noble truths of love. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to start meditating is what you're going to do. That meditation is helpful, I think. I mean, it, it isn't the, uh, I mean, the fourth truth is that, that there is a path to liberation. Mm-hmm. There's a path to work with all of this. And it involves creating a strong foundation for, for a relationship, uh, opening your heart to the other person as having at least equal importance to yourself in the relationship, which as we've discussed is not so easy to do. And then finally, and I think this is most important relative to what we were just talking about is to view everything that happens between the two of you, not as a way of deepening romance or passion, but as a way of deepening intimacy, which has no end. You're never going to be like, Oh, now we know each other and we can't go any deeper. Never. So that is something you can actually commit to for a lifetime and you don't know what it's going to look like and it's going to hit a wall and it's going to open up into the big blue sky and it's, it's going to take you. You're not going to take it. So that's exciting to me. The mission of the love drive is to spread love through emotional intimacy. Mm. You're talking my language. That's beautiful. For me, it, so- it sounds like, or I, I just... You know, I think that intimacy is the key to it all. Mm -hmm. I agree, which is predicated on vulnerability and tenderness and 
courage. Which is all, those are all three kind of scary things to, to sit in sometimes. Absolutely. And especially when it comes to the most vulnerable thing you can ever do, which is, you know, love someone. And some people can't, uh, can't be in the presence of that intimacy, that vulnerability, that transparency. I fully accept that decision. It's not for everyone. Yeah. The one thing that we, we haven't really touched on <clears throat> is that how is mindfulness meditation the answer to pretty much everything in life? Because that's what, <laughs> that's what, well, that's trending, by the way, here right? at least in the West, in the West. It is, it is. Well, it's not the answer to everything in life, and I know you're kidding, but it, it's, you know, oh my God, yeah. It isn't the answer to everything in life. And in fact, it uh, can be uh, damaging in some cases, absolutely the wrong thing to do in incidences of trauma and psychological illness, bad, contraindicated, harmful, destructive. Don't do it. Oh, wow. Totally wrong to do it. can exacerbate problems. It amplifies everything. So... If you're in a situation that you don't want to amplify, don't meditate. But it does, uh, it's not a panacea and it's not a life hack and it's not a shortcut and it's not a way of avoiding. The way it's presented often now is as a way of avoiding pain, avoiding difficulty, shortcutting to get somewhere you want to go. It is not going to do any of those things. It's a long cut. It will not prevent any difficulty. It will actually increase your emotional sensitivity, which is the source of its power. So if you're looking for a way to be peaceful, quote unquote, don't meditate. But if you're looking for a way to be genuine and brave and give your heart away, definitely try it because that's what's going to happen anyway. For me, it's been a, a really beautiful path to creating awareness. And what does awareness do? How does awareness affect you? Awareness allows me to feel more what's happening inside mm -hmm. rather than uh, getting um, sort of a vague feeling that something's not right and then mm -hmm. finding a way to not feel that. Mm -hmm. I can go and explore. What is that thing? It's so useful. Why is it here? Right. How can I use it? How can I explore it? How can I sit with it? What does it mean? Is it, is it attached to my parents? Is it attached to my friends? Is it attached to my, my self, you know, like uh, my, my, my worth? Mm -hmm. So it makes you more, gives you more self-knowledge. That's really useful. And it allows me to pause before running to a distraction. It's really, really, really useful. Or eating it away. Right. Thank you, Jenna. <laughs> right. Really useful. Final question. Mm -hmm. You've already answered this. I, you could answer this in a million different ways, but what, what does love mean to you? Mm. Wow. It's cliche to say, but letting, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. 
That's not cliche. I like that. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. I, I enjoyed talking to you a lot. Where can we find you? Uh, on the internet at susanpiper.com. And my online community is called the Open Heart Project. And if you sign up for it, it's free. We can meditate together. I send out a free guided meditation every week. And you can find my books there and information about where I'm teaching and so on. And is the Open Heart Project sort of the largest community of online meditators? It sort of is the largest online mindfulness community in the world. But fair, I have to be fair and say, I think it's also the only one. <laughs> I mean, that's like two wins. Not only is it the only one, it's also the largest. Well, and the, and the smallest. <laughs> <laughs> and the smallest. And it's also just the right size. Exactly. It's kind of the Goldilocks of online mindfulness communities. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for spending an hour with me today. It really means the world. If you want to find out more about me or The Love Drive or get detailed show notes for this episode, go to thelovedrive.com. And if you're struggling with your love life, your dating life, your relationship, or your sex life, and you want some one-on-one support, let's see if working with me as your love coach is a good fit. People that work with me continue to develop the emotional intimacy required to have loving and connected relationships with themselves and with those around them. If that is something that you desire, then I invite you to contact me, Sean at thelovedrive.com. That's S-H-A-U-N. Or find me on Instagram at thelovedrive. Have a beautiful week.